So tonight we are in the book of Isaiah 12. If you guys want to start turning there, I can give you guys a bit of context on tonight's, uh, uh, on, the, on the passage for tonight. Isaiah is right after the book of Song of Solomon and right before the book of Ezekiel, which is where Isaiah kicks off what are called the major prophets. So you can start turning there. In, in chapters 1 to 5, God kind of lays out his case, his, his covenant case against his covenant people. These people have... Uh, have, have ruptured their covenant with him. They have, they have sought comfort in other gods. They have, have chosen to worship gods that are not Yahweh, gods, uh, dead gods, as, as Isaiah will very clearly uh, say. Chapter 5 has this, this famous part. It's called the, the Song of the Vineyard, where God sings a song to his people that recounts where uh, the, the, the vineyard has has kind of it's, it's been corrupted. It's, it's, it's slowly dying. And God promises that he will destroy uh, this vineyard that is his people. And there's an interesting part in verse 8 where he says that he himself, he will command that the rain, that the clouds give no rain to his people that are like a garden. In Isaiah 6, I'm sure many of us are familiar with it. God makes atonement in, in his temple for Isaiah. And he commissions Isaiah to go on his behalf and, and preach judgment against his people. Chapters 7 to 10 are kind of mixed with both judgment uh, on God's faithless people. And yet there are, there are these interesting mixtures of hope. Because God is faithful to his covenant people. Even as they are not faithful to him. Uh, Isaiah 11 foretells of a day where the, the, the stump of Jesse. Or what we would call or understand to be the seed of David. Just Christ, uh, he would he he comes and he he reigns and wolves and sheep lie down together in the same pasture. These unthinkable things happen because this unthinkable person has ascended to the throne, and then we find ourselves now in uh, Isaiah twelve, where he is telling of this day where we we can do nothing but but sing back to our God. So if you read with me, the the text that we're looking at is verses. Uh, chapter 12, verses 3 to 4. It says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. I think that the main point of the text is, is, is fairly clear. It's, it's that God provides for his people, and in response his people worship, or his, his people sing to him. I think that tonight we'll look at very briefly at two points. The first of which we'll, be, we'll begin to, to, to address. It's that God is the sole sustenance of our souls. So God alone provides what we need. So in, 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 in verse 3, Isaiah says that we will draw water from the wells of salvation. Well, right before that in verse 2, Isaiah identifies God himself with salvation. He says that, God has become my salvation. So think of how important a well would be for the people of Israel. A well provides, provides water. It provides sustenance. And it's, it's interesting, if we think back to that, that, that verse in chapter 5, God's people need water to live because they're like a garden. They rely on someone to tend to them. They've been destroyed and yet God says that I will be like a well. I will be a well of salvation for my people. 
So God promises that he will give life out of himself. Life will come from him and him alone. The life that God has is eternal because God himself is eternal. Now, if, if, if we take that out to its fullest meaning, we, that, that then means that there is no life outside of God. So when God promises that he himself will be the well of salvation for his people, he's saying that you will find salvation nowhere else because there is no salvation outside of me. God is promising that we can have life in him, that he will be life for us. That we don't have to go to our broken cisterns. We don't have to look elsewhere for provision. For joy and satisfaction, we often do look to other wells. We think there is water that is inexhaustible, like the water that God offers us. We think about the Samaritan woman with her, with her adulterous relationships. I think that uh, addiction or looking for life outside of God can be as obvious as an addiction to social media. Or it can be as subtle as one of us locked in a room behind all of our theology books wherein we think we will find life. And yet our Bibles are conspicuously dusty. We haven't touched them in a while. We think that we're going to find life in John Calvin. But John Calvin would tell us that we only, the, the one that I point to has true life. Both Isaiah and Jesus' words give us occasion for somber reflection. Where are the wells from which we are drawing for salvation? The places that we frequent show us where we worship at. So there's, a, there's an interesting part in Isaiah 7 where Isaiah goes to King Ahaz, who's the king of Judah, southern kingdom of Israel at the time, and he, he prompts Ahaz to put his trust, in, his trust and faith in the Lord to provide for, uh, for, for military protection. And Ahaz, under the, the feign of self-righteousness, he says, I'm not going to test the Lord. I, think, I, I, I know that the Lord will deliver us. But secretly, Ahaz makes treaties with Assyria, which is a foreign power at the time. He trusts foreign gods. He trusts foreign powers for provision. He doesn't trust the God who brought his people out of Egypt. He trusts foreign gods. And if you want to read something horribly depressing, go to 2 Chronicles 28 and watch. Watch what happens to Ahaz. It's a really sad line where it says that, Ahaz says that, I will worship the gods of Syria because the gods of Syria have helped them. And then there's a small line after that where it says, but he did that and he did that to his ruin and he did that to Israel's ruin. The reason why there is, we cannot find salvation at other wells is because they give us nothing but death because God alone is the God of life. When we look elsewhere for provision, when we look elsewhere for life, we lie about who God is. We, dis, we don't agree with how he reveals himself to us the scriptures. Our fundamental issue with God is that that is, that is our fundamental condition. We're like Ahaz. We refuse to place our faith and trust in God. And when Isaiah prompts Ahaz to give him a sign, Ahaz says no. But immediately after that, God still says he will give a sign. He foretells of the coming Messiah. 
God in his love demonstrates that he intends to bring life back into the world, we don't have to return back to our vomit. We don't have to return back to the things that we consume and that kill us. God provides life in his son. The son goes to the cross, willingly submits, takes on the sin that we brought into the world, the darkness that we brought into the world, the light of life is snuffed out on a cross. And then three days later, he rises again, resurrected by the Holy Spirit, that now if we place our faith and trust in Christ, who gave himself for us, we receive the water from the well that as Trey talked about earlier, in, when he referenced John 7, 37 to 39, that water is the Holy Spirit that cleanses us, that regenerates us, or gives us new life. The, the, the water that God gives is the saving water of the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Spirit, we're adopted. We're made sons and daughters of a king. There is no God that, ex- that exists that would do that that would make a sinful people the rightful heirs to their kingdom. Social media will not give that to you. False gods will not give that to you. God provides deliverance for us. The the poison that we drink day by day when we reject God, God said he'll give us his spirit. He'll create in us clean hearts. All we have to do is place faith and trust in the son that he has provided for us. God alone is the salvation for his people. So those who drink of the living water of the the Holy Spirit become true worshipers of God. So God in John 4, or Jesus in John 4, when he's, he's referring to Jesus, he says that God the Father is looking for People who will worship in spirit and truth. Well, the the ironic part is that God makes those worshipers by giving them the Holy Spirit. So point two tonight that we'll look at is that God's salvation results in true worship. Because God saves and provides for his people, they worship him. Now, worship can take many forms. Worship can be individual. Worship can be corporate. I think that uh, uh, the, the best definition that we can have for worship is that it is a disposition or a behavior or an attitude uh, towards the Lord of our hearts and of our minds that acknowledge his goodness and faithfulness to us. Or as Isaiah helpfully says in verse 4, it's, it's, it's giving thanks to the Lord, which is how he opens up verse 4. Worship, I think, is, the, is the, should be the structure of the Christian life. We can go to Psalm 136, which is a a phenomenal psalm that simply outlines the mighty acts of God on behalf of his people. And then they simply say, for his steadfast love endures forever. Worship is the structure of the Christian life. It is an acknowledgement of what God has done and then a gratefulness and a gratitude towards him for securing us. My prayer for us and for you all to, for, for, for you all and for myself is that we increasingly would be given eyes that can see the goodness and grace of God in our lives and that we would have hearts that would readily and happily worship him for that. And though worship is more than, than singing a, a song, it is, it, is, it is not less than that. 
And worship as song is what Isaiah is actually getting at here. So worship isn't just individual. And if we want to see that, we can go to Romans 12 and see how Paul talks about uh, our lives as spiritual worship uh, to the Lord. But what Isaiah is talking about is corporate. It's, it's you and I together singing to the Lord. It's what we did earlier, and it's what, by God's grace, we're going to get to close out doing. I love what I ripped on John Calvin a little bit earlier, but I love John Calvin, actually. John Calvin has really good things to say. And actually, reflecting on Isaiah 12, verse 4, he says this, that, that we, the church, are to be exciting each other by mutual exhortation to embrace the pure worship of God. He, he being Isaiah, now also commands them to excite each other to thanksgiving. And that is why I love Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings are my favorite times of the week. I can't count how many times I've stopped singing just to watch all of you worship. I don't recommend everyone do it at once because then everyone stops singing, obviously. So do it enough so I can continue doing it. I can't, I cannot count. I can't even, I can't tell you what it means. When there are mornings when I cannot worship, there are mornings when I can't sing the praises of God. And yet watching you all do it excites me to Thanksgiving. I, I can't thank you enough. I can't praise our God enough for the life that he gives me through watching you all worship. So there are two dimensions to, to worship. The one that I just talked about was how it is encouraging to me. It's encouraging to us. The second dimension, which we talked about earlier with John 4, is that it's evangelistic. The hope that I just talked about, that wells up inside of me, that wells up inside of us. That's the hope of eternal life. And that's what we bring. That's what we bring to the nations. Our worship is what we take to the nations because our worship proclaims the deeds of God, namely the reconciling act that he has done for us, his people, in Christ. Our worship should be pure and filled with the gospel. Because it is the gospel alone that saves. So when we sing and we sing of God and all that he's done. And there are people here who are not Christians. They see in song what they could be a part of. We proclaim the goodness of God in salvation when we worship. When our worship, when its focus is on God. Like the woman at the well who goes into town proclaiming Jesus to the townspeople, saying, look at all the things that he did. Look at all that he told me. Salvation results in true worship, which results in missions. And like the wisdom of God in founding the church, the collapsing of Jew and Gentile into one man, in Ephesians 3.10, Paul says that the mere existence of the church demonstrates to earthly rulers and to spiritual heavenly rulers, that God is supremely and profoundly wise. We proclaim the goodness of God in the gospel when we sing, when we come together. That's what we participate in. It's not just something that is just here. It's for the nations. It's for the universe. To sum up, we've, 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 we've talked about we said that God provides living water. God provides the only means of salvation for his people. There is no life outside of God. And the life that he gives results in true worship. 
which goes to the nations. Both John and Trey this morning concluded both the sermon and service reflecting on Revelation 22. Revelation 22, I would say rips, but it, it mirrors itself after Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel is having a vision, and he sees the throne, and he, he uses a word, it's an interesting word, he says that he sees water issuing itself, which just means like kind of slowly dribbling. He sees water slowly coming from the throne of God, and as he continues to observe, he sees this water go further and further east. And it's interesting, if you go all the way back to Genesis, when God's people were moved out of the garden, they were moved out of God's presence, they were removed from all hope, they went east. We see in the throne, from the throne, water going towards the east. Trey earlier said that Christ is like the hound of heaven. Well, God sends his water after the people who have left, after the people who have gone. Ezekiel sees the water becoming more and more and more abundant until he says it's no longer just issuing, but you can swim in it. And on the side, trees that won't wither, that continue providing sustenance for the nations, that's what God's salvation results in. That is what is our inheritance. Water that is so deep that we can drown in it. That's what God provides out of himself. And that's what we see in Isaiah 12, verses 3 and 4. And the great hope of God's people is they would dwell in his midst again one day. And that's exactly how Isaiah 12 closes. Isaiah 11 talks about this exodus of God's people from the nations. And they come back and they find God once again in their midst. The Holy One of Israel is in the midst of his people. God calls us to worship him at the well. Because there is no hope or life for us outside of him. And he gives us to himself like a, a river, an abundance of a river that can drown us. Let's, let's worship together the God of our salvation. Let's pray.